This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, you might remember we talked about this uh, a while back, uh, a couple of days ago. The city of Oakville has now voted to designate Glen Abbey Golf Course as a heritage site. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, it will protect uh, protect Glen Abbey from uh, becoming a housing complex, but certainly is one step closer to that. Uh, let's bring in Fraser Damoff, executive director of uh, the Save Glen Abbey uh, organization, which has been trying very, uh, very hard to uh, make sure that this doesn't get turned into a housing uh, complex. And he is with us now. Hello, Frazier. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me on. So obviously you must be pleased with a turn of events at City Council. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's a step in the right direction. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's one one piece of a long puzzle um, that we're trying to figure out. But uh yeah, no, we were definitely pleased to see the results on Monday night. Uh, unanimous vote, I understand. Uh, surprised at that. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was nice to see. It's, you know, you never want to see a divided council, uh, and to see them all voting together in unison was, was a nice uh, sign to send to the community. So what happens now? Does this mean that uh, it's a done deal, that there will not be houses built on the site of the Glen Abbey Golf Course? What happens now? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, there's basically the best way to think about it. There's there's really two separate processes happening simultaneously right now. Uh, the first one, obviously, that happened Monday night was the heritage designation. Um, there's an appeals process with that that goes to the uh, conservation review board, and they'll be the ones. You know, if this is if Club Link appeals that heritage designation, and the conservation review board will be the ones that kind of ultimately, uh, you know, pass a ruling and, and decide whether the heritage can be. Uh, you know, designation enforced on Clublink. Um, on the other side, the actual development application, that'll be reviewed on September 26th at the town. Um, and uh, our, our organization, Save Glen Abbey, plans to go and highlight some of the huge deficiencies in their plan for the community. Um, eventually, these two channels will kind of meet and uh, either it will be, you know, protected in some form as heritage or it will be, uh, you know, built into a new subdivision. So uh, what is the process? Uh, so obviously council has moved forward to declare it uh, a heritage area. Um, how, who actually decides whether it is and what is the criteria for that? Yeah, so it's a good question. So it goes to an, um, a body called the Conservation Review Board, which is set out in the Ontario Heritage Act. Um, and this this body would, uh, you know, essentially look at the designation and um it would obviously hear the concerns um, of the person or the organization appealing the heritage designation, which in this case, if public does decide to do that, would be them. Um, and then they would pass a ruling, uh, which could be anything from a fully endorsement of the town's heritage designation, uh, all the way to completely tossing the town's heritage designation. And you know what will be interesting to see is just how that process unfolds. Um, there are two other golf courses in Ontario that have been designated as heritage. The only difference with those golf courses is that they are public courses. So mm. this this is kind of uh, uncharted waters for a lot of people. But um, you know, one thing that I've been saying a lot, the, the mayor uh, Mayor Burton kind of echoed my uh, sentiments that I had at council was that if Glen Abbey is not heritage, then I would love if someone could please show me what is because in in many people's minds around the world. Glen Abbey Golf Course is the definition of heritage. It's got it was designed by one of golf's biggest names. Uh, it's been witness to some of the greatest Canadian Opens. So all this stuff kind of adds to the the historical aspect of Glen Abbey. And 
you know, I, I want to say one thing on your show uh, to make it really clear is that myself and a lot of people in Oakville, we're not opposed to development uh, at all. We're opposed to development when it's not done in the right places. And the town has not planned for development on this property. It's not zoned residential or commercial. Uh, so it's really important for people to understand that there are parts of Oakville where development is wanted and needed uh, to help spur economic development. And building it on top of a world-renowned golf course is just, it's not something that is in uh, the plans, in the official plans in Oakville, and it's not really something that fits with the community. You bring up a valid point here, Frazier, that it's not in the plans uh, as part of the development for Oakville. So even if it is sold to a developer, a developer, ultimately, wouldn't it be the town that decides what happens to it? I mean, wouldn't they decide whether it's housing or something else? Yeah, and this is one of the big issues that we've a lot of communities have faced over the years is that a municipality can decide that, you know, this property can't, shouldn't be changed zoning to residential or whatnot. Um, and then what will happen is the builder will then, or, or the developer will then appeal to the Ontario Municipal Board and the OMB uh, will almost always, uh, you know, side with the developer. Um, and I don't know uh, enough specifics mm. on why that is, but it's, it's well documented. Uh, and that's what's led to a big push by a lot of municipalities on uh, the, on Premier Wynne and her government to, uh, you know, seriously fix the flaws in the OMB so that uh, decision-making is left with municipal councils, not an unelected body, uh, you know, set up by the province. How is it zoned now again? It's uh, zoned right now as private open space, which to my understanding is the same as what a, um, you know, a lot of golf courses and farmers field. Like it's, it's a private property, but it's not zoned as residential or commercial. It's zoned in our livable Oakville plan is private open space. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, club links can apply to the OMB to have that changed. And normally, yeah. you said they cite on the side they, they cite on the side of the developer. Yeah, yeah. Which seems very odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact that this is public versus private is that what really complicates this discussion? Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where we're not really sure how this is going to play out because in the two previous examples I mentioned, it's. Uh, publicly owned and publicly owned courses. So, you know, the municipality, obviously the owner of the property was on side for it being heritage. So it's, uh, it's tough to tell how this will all play out. Um, but one thing I think that we, you know, can't ignore is that, you know, Glen Abbey does have a lot of history to it. And, and Club Link has made a lot of comments about, well, how can grass and mounds of dirt be um, heritage? And, you know, you can make the same case for buildings. How can brick and mortar be heritage? But you know what? A lot of buildings are heritage, especially in Toronto and all over the province. So, you know, it's one of those things where we're not really sure how this is going to play out. But, uh, you know, you ask the 7,000 or more people that have signed our petition and that have voiced support uh, for for saving Glen Abbey Golf Course. And, you know, they'll tell you, absolutely, it's historic and it deserves to be protected. Uh, if it is designated a, a heritage area in in the full sense of the term, mm-hmm. um, how does that complicate issues for anyone trying to develop it? And does that help when the OMB would normally side on the side of developers? Does this help sway it in the other direction? Yeah. How much those, do we know? It's, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We, you know, if when when something is designated as heritage, there's certain rules around changes to the property in order to, you know, obviously protect the pieces of the property that make it heritage. So, um, you know, on Monday night, all of Glen Abbey Golf Course was designated as heritage. So what we're really looking for is to see what the if there is an appeal by Club Link, what the Conservation Review Board ends up deciding is heritage. Because 
whatever the Conservation Review Board kind of decides if there's this appeal from Kublink will ultimately be the parts of the property that are designated as heritage and will need to be protected should any development be approved um, through the other channel that I mentioned about the development application. So uh, council has voted to to declare this heritage. Uh, would that normally be a slam dunk for uh, uh, this conservation review board, or is it the fact that Club Links would appeal it that would change things? Yeah, that's the thing, right? So Club, if Club Link appeals it, we're not totally sure um, you know, how that's going to play out. The, the, the Ontario Heritage Act does set out an entire process for how uh, you know, appeals, you know, go about and it's most times handled with single property where there's an old farmhouse and, uh, you know, either the municipality wants to protect it and the homeowner doesn't. Um, to the best of my knowledge, this is one of the first instances and this is kind of why it's uncharted waters where a property this big, on such a world-renowned golf course with such a, you know, uh, well-recognized owner in Cobblink, um, and then with the town of Oakville. So all of these parties involved, it's, you know, uh, us as an organization, we're not really sure how this is going to all play out. Um, the only thing we can hope is that, you know, it, when you look at the basics of this instance, you know, as I said, if Clan Abbey isn't heritage, then what is? So uh, we're really trying to, to look forward and see how this can all play out. But uh, ultimately, it will rest if Clublink does appeal with their conservation review board. So at this point, the ball, no pun intended, is uh, is in uh, Clublink's is on Clublink's green right now. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if they decide to appeal, then it'll be then that's we'll go forward with that. That's what sets it in motion. So yeah. uh, have has anybody heard from Clublink's? Have they any comment on this designation or this vote from town council? Yeah. So uh, one of the Clublink representatives on Monday night. Uh, you know, spoke out that he wasn't sure, um, you know, how, how they were going to be able to run the golf course now that there's this heritage designation, which, you know, I think a lot of people kind of laughed at because, it's you know, it's not like you can't cut the grass and stuff. It's it's simply making sure, and, and it's one step in a long process, but it's it's just to ensure that the characteristics of, that make Glen Abbey so special are protected. Um, so, you know, we I think a lot of us are kind of waiting to hear what their response will be uh, and whether they will appeal this. I think it's almost uh, a certainty that they will. Uh, but until that happens, it's you know you don't want to um, you know speak on that until we know for sure from them that they are they plan on doing that. How long has Clublink owned this course? Uh, it's I think this oh, I'm trying to remember now. It was in the 90s I think that Clublink got bought out um, by uh, if I'm not mistaken uh, Ray Sahi and uh, which ties to Morgard Real Estate. So if I if I'm not mistaken, it was in the 90s that uh, that Clublink was bought out and. Uh, Clubling kind of changed hands to the current owners. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? I'm sure that Club Links is lawyering up on this to figure out yeah. the best way to to fix this. Wh- which way do you think it's going to swing? I, you know what? I, again, I, I kind of I, I got to hope that you know seven thousand people aren't wrong um, from all over the world about this golf course. You know, if if that many people uh, across the globe see this as a heritage does a heritage site. Um, you know, I'd be very surprised to see how 7,000 people could all be wrong about the historical context of this course. Um, I, I think that in the end, what we're what we hope to see is uh, is Glen Abbey's characteristics protected for generations to come. Um, but you know, as I said before, depending on how this all plays out, it, it may not. It may be up to an elected or an unelected body, um, you know, set up by the province that ends up deciding on this. But again, I, I think. 
as we look forward in this, um, our her- the heritage designation on Glen Abbey is one of the things that we're fighting the hardest for because it's just a no-brainer. You know, it's been uh, witness to some of the greatest events in golfing history, and it's really important that that's protected. And um, you know, aside from the whole development application thing, I, I think a lot of people would agree that Glen Abbey is historic, even if it's not one of the best golf courses in terms of the golfing professionals. No one can argue what's happened there has been a part of golf history. Um, so that's kind of where we're really looking forward to seeing how this plays out and ensuring that Glen Abbey gets, you know, that heritage designation enforced on it uh, so that it can be protected. Could this get stuck in court for a while? You know what, it could be. That's a part of it we're not really sure, right? Because the other two golf courses that are going to fit into this category, uh, you know, went through much easier than this will. It's tough to tell how this can actually, you know, unfold. I know uh, if I was a betting man, I'd expect this to go on for another, you know, eight to ten years. Um, just in all, you know, in thinking how long it takes to just redevelop a property on its own um, and uh, without a heritage heritage designation. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where this ends up up going. Well, Frazier, this land certainly isn't going to become less valuable over time, you know, and as a company, I'm thinking Club Links is looking at it, either it makes money as a golf course or we sell the land, and and that's what their game plan, I'm sure, is for all of their courses. You know, you buy these remote areas, and as it becomes developed, you either generate the revenue uh, through golf or or, or you unload the land. So, I mean, can you see this as being an ongoing battle? Yeah, I do, and I think I think what Oakville and what we're doing is the Save Gravity Coalition is a bit, um, you know, we're kind of setting a precedent here because I guarantee you Clublink will be doing this again. They've already done it once in Aurora, and they won that battle because it wasn't as notable, of course. But, I, you know, if I'm a betting man, I'm telling you, Clublink is going to keep doing this, obviously keep cashing out on their courses. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things where, from their perspective, I do get it that, you know, they're a private owner of this course, and I, I do get the fact that they want to cash out. But, um, you know, when our official plan doesn't designate it as residential or commercial, again, that's not how the game is played. You know, mm-hmm. you, just because you want to sell a property and turn it into houses doesn't mean uh, that that's what you'll get to do. Uh, either way, the town of Oakville will make money either way, won't they? Simply because if it turned into a housing complex with 30, 3,200 houses, that's more tax, no? Yeah. Or, or would they make as much from the from the golf course? you got to think, though, too. That's a lot more people that they have to serve in terms of in terms of those taxes as well. Yeah, good um, point. It, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of resourcing and a lot of uh, infrastructure that would be needed to kind of maintain that community. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things that people, I think, often... Um, discount or don't think about too much the economic impact that the Canadian Open has uh, for the town that it's in. You know, when it's in Oakville, businesses see a boom and restaurants see a boom and hotels see a boom. So it's one of those things to not have that would be kind of a missed opportunity for our local business owners. Um, so, you know, it's I think that as part of the analysis the town did, they found that they'd actually lose revenue if the uh, golf course wasn't there. But, um, you know, certainly from the perspective of having more taxes, there's, again, obviously much more people that they would have to service with those tax dollars. So it's not like there would be a, you know, a cash windfall for the town of Oakville if this development was to happen. So at this point, you're just waiting to hear from Club Links on this moving forward. Yeah, this is, it's a waiting game now to yeah. see, you know, what they've got up their sleeves. Frazier Damoff has been with us uh, from Cycle Oakville and spokesperson for Save Glen Abbey. Fraser, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck. No problem. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
Uh, don't know if you got a chance to. Uh, there's not many times I watch something, especially if it's political and related to my job, and I'm sort of the news junkie guy anyway. But, I, you know, there's not many times when I've looked at something and thought, I don't know if I can watch this much longer. And that's and and I know lots of you get upset when I talk too much about Trump. Then I get notes from most of you saying, "Go get her." Um, but man, what I witnessed last night was just absolutely unbelievable. This guy, uh, you can see how he just gets high off his supporters and just starts strutting around like he's Mick Jagger or Bono as opposed to a world leader. Uh, Here's a clip from uh, his speech in Phoenix, or sorry, in Arizona last night. Um, And this is about him loving everyone. He talked at the beginning of the speech uh, in regards to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and his reaction, uh, blaming the media for the divisiveness uh, in the country. Uh, This is a piece of Donald last night. I didn't say I love you because you're black or I love you because you're white, or I love you because you're from Japan, or you're from China, or you're from Kenya, or you're from Scotland or Sweden. I love all the people of our country. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, and of course you've read her in HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily, with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm just fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Did you watch this? Oh, my. Honestly, this one made me feel the most uncomfortable of any of them. Well, when you saw Don Lemon from CNN, when they cut back to him after the speech, and he just looked at the camera, and he's like, what do you say? (laughs) What do you say? You know, especially after Trump points out to the media feed, you know, that are covering the speech. And you people are sick, and you people are immoral, you're fake, fake media. You know, it's almost as if you're watching somebody become unhinged, yet there are people cheering him on. Yeah, yeah. I I, I found his uh, diatribe on the media just unbelievable. Um, And the attacks that he, 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 he... He thrust on certain organizations, and then when he actually—and we're looking for this clip now—he's when he was actually saying that all the cameras' red lights were turning off as he was speaking like this. When in fact, as someone in the media, uh, you know as well as I do that are you kidding? This is all the excuse to keep those red lights on. And he says things that people are like, "Well, yeah, it's true. It must be true." And. Uh, and, and his supporters are sitting there beaming and smiling. And honestly, you know, we had talked about this before, because when you talk to Trump supporters, they just say he's having a bad day. They just say he's been misunderstood. They just say that he's doing a great job. But you know what I say? I say, who's pulling the strings now? You know, with Bannon gone, maybe gone, but not, you know, uh, gone from the White House, but probably still has the ear of the president. You know, with him gone, who is managing all of this? And obviously, you know, he goes in with his speech, you know, President Trump is good at one thing. He loves to campaign. He never wants to stop campaigning because he knows that when he campaigns, everybody was on his side. It's the ruling part that he's having a problem with. 
So every time he's getting, you know, hit with a spade of bad press, what does he do? He gets his organizers, they go into a state where that is favorable to him, obviously Republican, and they bust him in. You know, they go to all the Republican, you know, community parties and they say, okay, you know, Trump is coming. We all got to come. We'll get you a bus. Hop on the bus. We want to make sure you're there. So busting in supporters is nothing new. But honestly, you know, uh, you know, he could certainly still fill a stadium with his supporters. Um, I don't know how many people were there. I mean, he'll tell you one number and somebody else will tell me another number. But honestly, he is doing what he feels he does best. So that's why he went straight back to the rhetoric that got him hired in the first place. How do, what do Americans think of, and the only the, the only analogy I can think of is the Jekyll and Hyde, a Jekyll and Hyde analogy. Uh, he's, he plays once, he, he plays one audience when he's doing something presidential like a State of the Union. And then, as you mentioned, jumps on a plane and goes down into the circus tent and then delivers something like he did last night. How, how do the American people digest this Jekyll and Hyde kind of personality? Well, you know, you never know what you're going to get. It's like a box of Cracker Jacks, right? You know, you open one up and it's a different toy every time. So, you know, with Trump, it's the same thing. It's almost like he's playing the part. He'll do what he has to say. He reads from the script. And then he thinks, well, you know what, I've done that. Now I'm going to tell you what I really think, because that's why people elected me. They wanted me to drain the swamp. Well, he's only just really refilled the swamp with different people. But they wanted me to drain the swamp. I'm going to tell them all the things that they wanted to hear in the first place. We're going to talk about the wall. We're going to talk about how I'm going to shut down government if I don't get my wall, and how I'm going to stamp my feet if I don't get my wall. And he really just kind of goes off in a very unhinged way he sees the reception that he gets it's almost like a comedian when you get that first laugh it gives you that confidence to go that's exactly what it's that's exa- that's exactly what i thought when i saw him last night Alyssa. it's like i'm watching a rock star or in your case you used an analogy of a comedian it's like for example when he talked about building the wall and he got the, well and they all started chanting build the wall build the wall it's like he stands back from the mic as if he's just done an amazing guitar solo well, it's almost like Mussolini. Remember, he used to stand back and bask in praise yeah. of, uh, you know, his denizens, and, you know, look what happened to him. So, <laughs> you know, and, and then he starts, and then the, the more um, praise that he gets gives him more impetus to say, well, now I'm going to say what I really think. And it's almost like to filter what little of it that is left uh, that, you know, prevents him from saying what he shouldn't say, he just goes away and he starts to attack his own Republican for, uh, in the state of Arizona. He um, starts to say, we're going to dismantle NAFTA if I don't get my way with the wall, which is more against... Um... Phew, excuse me. I don't think you've ever sneezed in an interview. With you. That was very good. Thank you very much. Bless you. Bless you, my dear. Uh, so so at, at, one point, at one point, Trump refers to General <laughs> Kelly. And he goes, is General Kelly around? You know, General, Ke- stand up and take a bow, General. Ke-. And I'm, make, I'm thinking, if if they had a camera on Jennifer, uh, on General Kelly right now, you'd see him running for the door. Well, you know, you've seen General Kelly stand in the corner of other when he first came out with his statement, and then the second statement, he's standing in the corner with his hands in his pockets, looking down, thinking, "I said yes to this." You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Uh, talking about Donald Trump's rally in Phoenix, Arizona last night, this is what he had to say about the media. Those cameras are going off. Oh, wow. Why don't you just fold them up and take them home? 
Oh, those cameras are going off. Wow. That's the one thing. They're very nervous to have me on live television because this can't happen. Now, you know what? I'm a person that wants to tell the truth. I'm an honest person. And what I'm saying, you know, is exactly right. Yes, and the fact that he needs justification for everybody else, from everybody else proves just how true it is. Uh, Alyssa Freeman back with his PR uh, guru. Uh, Alyssa, you know, I can understand completely that he is appealing to his base, but what about everybody else? I'm not sure this is building the base. Is this not alienating himself? No, and uh, I'll tell you why. You know, he doesn't need everybody else. He needs those people that make up the Electoral College that will get him in. So he still needs to appeal to the people that voted for him. Those are some people in Arizona. Those are mainly people in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania. So he needs the people in those states. And by continuing the rhetoric that they have become used to, that they like, that they stand up and clap for with their smiling faces, that's all all he has to appeal to. He knows he's not going to get any moderates on his side. He knows he's not going to get any Democrats on his side. I mean, he knows. So he doesn't need to talk to them. So, so that's why everything he says is, is uh, targeted at the base. So at what point does the Trump base realize that this is really not doing them any good? That, you know, uh, although he talks a good game, their life has not got any better. Or is just this venom that he spews enough to convince them that he's worth keeping? You know, uh, his base may desert him when something deserts them, something that they hold dear to them. So, for example, health care, if their benefits go away. And a lot of them don't realize what will happen, that if they, when they get sick or if they are sick, that when they, they say that 23 million Americans will lose their benefits, well, you know, I, I would bet your bottom dollar that many of them are also part of Trump's base. So something uh, definitive would have to be taken away from them. It also might be, you know, God forbid, um, a call to war, hmm. where when they're asked to enlist, when they're asked to go overseas and fight, you know, whomever, you know, the North Koreans, like whomever. So when something is uh, one of their fundamental rights of a premise that he has, that he takes away from them, that may be the last straw. But it will have to be something very concrete very black and white that they hold dear. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, Obamacare, whatever, willing to let the country go bankrupt, but he's rich. They're not. So at what point do they realize he'll be fine? Uh, it still sucks to be me. Yeah, I don't think they care that he's rich. You know, I think that they hired him there because hired him, they elected him because they, he is rich. That he knows how to make money. He knows how, how to make all of us prosperous. You saw when he was running for election, and you saw when they were uh, interviewing Americans that were going to vote for him, well, he's a businessman. He knows how to, he knows about finances, and he knows how to run a business so he can run a country. Well, we also had about, you know, four or five businesses that went bankrupt, so what about that? Well, people don't get into the details, you know, and sometimes people say to me, well, you know, I, I don't agree with what you're saying. People do tell into details. I don't think they do. I think they read headlines. I think they read what they want to read, and they hear what they want to hear. So, you know, based on that, uh, you know, it, it's almost like they, he can do no wrong for them. 
One listener writes, with turn, a tongue firmly planted in cheek, I wonder, is Trump practicing to become a TV evangelist? That's what he looked like. Well, no, tongue's firmly planted in cheek. I would say no. I would say that's reality. He, he well, is appealing to that base, isn't he? They, it is. Your listener is quite astute. Yeah. I think that if Trump doesn't make it through these four years, and my goodness, it hasn't even been a year yet, and I think we are all exhausted, but uh, if Trump makes it through these four years, even if he doesn't, he has debt that he will have his own TV channel. Yeah. It'll be the new Fox. It'll be the new, you know, alt-right of Fox. Yeah. And that's really what he wants, because it's his own channel, his own cameras, his own producers, and he'll say whatever he wants to say, if anybody is still listening. Uh, Let's look at his communication strategy, which is very different from everyone else. Uh, The odd time he will hold a press conference and not take questions. The odd time he'll take questions, and usually it becomes a a freak show. Uh, Then he may use Twitter. And now the it now it's it's obviously it's becoming a pattern. The use of the rally, as you said, the campaign rally that he's never stopped. He uses this as a means of communication. He does whatever he has to do presidential in front of the main media cameras. He then tweets what he likes and then holds his own parties. It's an unusual way of getting the message across, isn't it? Well, you know, there is a little bit of method to the madness there. You know, when you're like president, Oh, he's smart as a whip. Yeah, you govern for two years or two and a half years, and then you use the next uh, remainder of your presidency to uh, make sure you get elected for the next four years. So as opposed to wait, he is basically still on the campaign trail for the next four years, as far as he's concerned, because he wants to make sure that he gets elected. He doesn't want his base to forget about him. So, you know, that type of strategy is uh, quite interesting, actually. You know, the tweets, people read them, I think, more for amusement now. People, I mean, listen, he still has all the followers. People still want to know what he thinks. But people are like, oh, yeah, Trump is tweeting whatever. Um, but it's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering who his big advisors are now. You know, the media showed a picture of his initial advisors in the first week, all surrounding him, you know, a group of, you know, very sage white men. And there's one guy left. And that's Mike Pence, who essentially, I think all the Republicans, establishment Republicans, are saying, wait your time, it'll be your turn soon. And I know that Trump is often comes off uh, unhinged, but I think that personally, I think Mike Pence is the devil. Uh, lots have said that. You're certainly not the first, and, and that's, that's the, real, the real fear here. Um, Mitch McConnell has said that he doesn't think he's going to last the term. How significant is that? You know, when I listen to guys like um, Lindsey Graham, who's very, very big in the Republican Party, and is, you know, certainly does his rounds at the Sunday morning news shows because they know he's going to say what they want him to say. Um, Mitch McConnell is much more of sort of a, a sober, you know, um, stalwart of the Republican Party who has pretty much stood by his president like any good Republican public, public servant. But it's interesting that he has put a toe in the water of... Um, not supporting him, which may mean this timeline of how long Trump is in power is uh, actually speeding up. Uh, so how long can you continually throw Republicans under the bus, especially in a state like Arizona, especially when you've got a war hero like John McCain? That's unbelievable. You know, he's got to be a special kind of person who can say stuff like that. And, you know, I do want to go back to the clip that you uh, did play. Um, about the media, oh, look, they're turning off their lights, they're taking off their cameras. You know, my bet, I didn't see it, I mean, what they what he was alluding to, but my bet is that when you're in a press conference, often what happens is 
uh, they shoot, the cameraman, the camera operator will shoot, and then take the camera off and then go get some crowd shots or move around in order to get some atmospheric footage. I think that that's probably what was happening. And Trump looked at that and said, oh, they're not filming me anymore. Oh, it's when I go live, these guys are so, so afraid of me. But I think that the big underlying, you know, thing here is, is that we look at this and we look at Americans supporting him and standing back and clapping and cheering at, you know, whatever nonsense he is spewing out of his mouth. And that, that is the most disturbing part. There has been lots and lots of populations that have supported uh, nefarious characters throughout history. And you saw them clapping and being supportive. And uh, I, I really wonder about those people and, and the image that they're now giving uh, the good old U.S. of A. You wonder if this genie can be put back in the bottle. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, this was a bizarre story about a New Brunswick guy who, uh, and you know, if you're in and out of Quebec, you know what this is like. If you've been in Ottawa and crossed over into Gatineau or what have you from the other end, uh, as this man did. Um, so he goes in and he buys like, and it wasn't just one or two, he buys like a bazillion cases of beer. I think he bought like a dozen cases. Uh, and he also drove like a couple hours to do it. So maybe he was there and thought, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, maybe he made the special trip just for the booze. Who knows? But as a result, uh, you cannot bring in New Brunswick, you cannot bring uh, booze back over from other provinces uh, because like us here in Ontario, they have a liquor control board uh, of some sort and uh, they don't want you buying cheaper booze in another province because that means less tax dollars uh, for the originating province. So as a result, Buddy goes over and uh, gets loaded up and, and comes back into uh, New Brunswick, uh, gets pulled over and caught with this booze that's from Quebec. Uh, and as a result, he gets a $292 fine. Um, most would probably let it go at that. But again, it's about principle for this guy. So he just kept taking it to court. And then eventually it makes it to the Supreme Court. And now they're saying that this could redesign Canadian federalism. To talk more about this, Dan Malik is with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, and with us now. Hello, Dan, your thoughts on this? I mean, when this first started, and I think we may have chatted about it, it was kind of a joke. Did you ever think it would get this far? Uh, actually, yeah. I, I would, you know, if, if you'd asked me if it would, could go to the Supreme Court, I probably would have said possibly. <laughs> That's a good historian's answer, yes. No, I don't know, but um, but I'm not surprised. Um, having read over the Supreme Court or the um, the other court's decision and some of the um, cases that they're referring to, and actually right now I'm doing research on um, the original sort of question of provincial versus federal jurisdiction in liquor regulation. So. It reaches back to the 1870s and the 1880s. So why is this coming up now? Because this guy has to ta- decided to take it all the way? I mean, yeah. it's not like these laws have just changed. No, he decided to contest it. Um, it, was, it was just a guy who said, you know what, this is ridiculous. Why, why is this happening? And uh, moved it forward into making what we call a charter challenge, right? So, or not a charter challenge, but a constitutional challenge. Like, whose, whose jurisdiction is um, cross-border um, regulation? Yeah, whose jurisdiction is cross-border regulation? So I'm guessing most politicians don't want to touch this because it's one of those, shh, don't tell anybody how much money we're making off of this. Uh, (laughs) 
Um, you mean most provincial politicians? Correct. Right? Yeah. Um, possibly. Uh, the 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 challenge is that, um, yeah, provincial the provincial governments had the right to li- have the right to license liquor sale, but the federal government is involved in uh, the, the the purview of the federal government is in in trade and manufacturing and, and commerce more generally, right? So so yeah, provincial um, politicians. Uh, have seen liquor liquor regulation has been uh, income for provinces and for municipalities even for uh, it was originally for uh, for decades um, so yeah so so this is something they don't want to be opened up again because it could change the nature of um, the, some of the revenue in places where there's a lot of uh, border uh, where there's a lot of population on the borders right so Ottawa Gatineau um, and uh, this area in New Brunswick isn't highly populated, but it could be an issue as well. In fact, I think Ottawa, the Ottawa-Montreal-Gatineau area is probably the biggest uh, issue. Yeah, I'm thinking that's the one that's the most populated and where most people are going to go back and forth, no? And apparently yeah. this guy drove like a couple hundred kilometers to make all this happen. Does, yeah. <laughs> do yeah. you think that'll play into this at all? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think it comes down to uh, the, respon- the the rights of provinces to do this and, and who's... Uh, whether this violates the Constitution's um, uh, the, the issues around free trade among provinces. And that's, that's the core issue. It comes down to it. But you do see this. I mean, I know people who live near the borders between B.C. and Alberta who talk about the beer runs that people would do because the taxes are so much lower in Alberta and some of the choice was, was better. And this is through the mountains. I mean, this isn't just like riding up the 401, right? You know, it's People do it, but it, it, this guy, yeah, who, I, I don't know what his motivation was, but you, you listed the amount of stuff he brought. It could have been for redistribution, which I think at the time there was, he was caught in a bit of a, not a sting, but in a, a bit of a, sort of when the cops sort of focus on one area, they were watching people coming across. Cops on one side were letting the cops on the other side know, okay, this guy just loaded up. Oh, nice. Right? So it was, it's it, a sting. It was a, yeah, it was a sting. So, was, you know, but I can yeah. see, I can see the point if, you know, people are doing it for a commercial purpose, if you own a club or a restaurant yeah. and you're, you're buying mass quantities, it could be quite a savings over the course of a month. Surprised they're chasing, um, this guy. Um, but again, I guess if he's got 14 cases, he could be yeah. doing the same thing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the, they weren't only chasing him. He's the one who decided to contest it, right? They could have, there could have been people with more. I don't, I don't know if they ever tried to get a, any sort of class action on this, right? But um, he's the one who tried to contest it. And yeah, I mean, he, he bought a lot of beer, right? <laughs> he bought a few other bottles of whiskey. Well, maybe that, he didn't want to go back and forth uh, do the yeah. drive so many times a year. He just yeah. wanted to do it once, and that was it. Yeah, and, and personally, um, the list of beer he bought, you know, that beer is already pretty bad, so it's not going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> but that aside, it's about quantity, not quality here. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, but but this is a challenge. Is that you know we we've all crossed the border. Uh, I mean, I say we've all, but many of us have crossed from say Quebec to Ontario, or I've I've done that run to yeah. through New Brunswick and stopped in Quebec to pick up some beer on the way through. Mm-hmm. We've all probably broken the law, but um, and, and so the question comes down to: Should this be the law? And and in the provincial side, I mean, it's it's about revenue, but it's not just about filling the coffers. I mean, there's this precedent where 
back in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, the provinces would share that revenue with the municipalities that had to deal with the impact of drinking in their community, right? So they had to deal with policing and and, uh, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. So there is that kind of component to it as well. So it's not just like about us getting money and them not getting, you know, them not getting the money. It's right. About, it's about paying for the social responsibility yeah. of it all. And that actually is, is another issue that uh, when these issues have come up uh, to the Supreme Court or even to the Privy Council, this happened um, back when things went all the way to London, um, th- there was this question of what's the, the federal government's duty and does this um, interprovincial barriers that the federal government has, has created and has allowed do these things meet the duty? And they often look to that sort of vague phrase um, of the government's job to enforce peace order and, or ensure the peace order and good government. Right? So that's the difference between this and, say, any other product or food or whatever which travels between province is that this comes with more social responsibility, therefore there's more cost involved. That has been some of the arguments in the past, and the and one of the... Um, cases they refer to. It's a fascinating case that happened when a, an Ontario company was trying to ship stuff into Alberta and the company, the, the, the sort of shipping company in Alberta refused to take it. Um, it was booze. They were, they were bringing booze in. They said that, um, th- that it was, uh, th- this was during uh, prohibition or right after prohibition. I think in Alberta there was still prohibition going on. And so this this that was and we discussed this many times. That was a time when the mm. alcohol was seen as much more of a social danger, right? So yeah. it could be that seventy years later, was this 70, 80, 90 years later, um, the Supreme Court won't won't see that as as the same right, kind of right. danger. So, but it's it's that stickler. It's that what separates this from other goods and products uh, in the country. Well, that that's one of them, right? So that's one of the precedents that the court looked at. The the lower court looked at. Um, the other is the right of the province to, it's, it's, there's this question about free trade between provinces. Does that mean completely untaxed trade? Does that mean unlimited trade? Right? And that's what they're, they're getting to. It's like Because you can bring a certain amount across. Mm-hmm. After that, you have to pay or you're not allowed to. Right? And so, but actually, I don't know if you have to pay. When I think about it, maybe you're just not allowed to bring more across. And that's the question of whether whether that restriction, whether that limit violates this idea of free trade. And the lower court did say, said, yes, in fact, they, they can't rest on this. Just, you know, they, they can't say we're still allowed to restrict it because it says in the Constitution free trade. And that's why it goes to the Supreme Court, because they, they hammer out those final decisions. So how will this change the liquor industry in Canada? How will this change things? It's tough to say how it will change it, because really this, you know... Um, do you think it will change? I, I don't know if it will change the liquor industry. Although what we did see, if if this if this opens up interprovincial trade, um, things that happened in the past, things that say breweries, for example, had to do, say Sleeman started buying up breweries and other provinces so that they could then market their stuff in other provinces. Because there was the law that says if you don't produce it there, you can't sell That's it right. there. And so now does that, you, does that still exist? Um, I think so. Okay, I think so. Um, that would not be necessary. That strategy would not be necessary, right? right? It would then require, you know, a company just to be able to ship it. Um, there are other rules around shipping. and, and So there would be lots of jobs there. Um, well, it, I don't know if there would be lots of jobs because, say, a brewery here wants to sell in New Brunswick. Instead of having to open a brewery there, they could expand their brewery here. Like, right. it might just be a, 
Uh, right, where they don't necessarily have the money to build a brewery in a certain yeah. province, they certainly can hire more employees and ship it there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so, I mean, I, I, I'm not an economist, so I don't know how, how this would happen. But it seems to me that there might be a shifting of types of jobs, right? It might, mm-hmm. There might be more shipping jobs and more brewing or distilling or whatever in certain locations. But it could also, I mean, we might be able to get some good New Brunswick micro beer or some good uh, whiskey that's only brewed there, something like that, more easily than we could before. Now, the LCBO contends that if there's anything that you want in another province, they said this with wine when people talked about um, interprovincial wine, that you can order it through their um, they have sort of a private ordering system, right. but um, this is just about people not having to go through all of that bother to to order it. Just can I just go across the border, buy it, bring it home? Does this, or, or would these, whatever decisions are made here, does this affect the LCBO as an organization or the beer store the way we distribute here? Um, I don't think so. It certainly wouldn't affect us here. It would. Um, because this is still the question of um, individuals bringing things across and, and some of the other regulations, like the one I mentioned from the... But 19th. where does that leave the LCBO? If all of a sudden it's okay to go across to Quebec to buy beer, then, you know, I mean, obviously we have higher prices here than they do in Quebec. Is that not going to affect brewers retail or, or uh, the LCBO? Uh, it, it, it might in those places, but I can't see everyone from Toronto or yeah, Hamilton good point. heading up, right? So yeah. I have to pick it up. But, but this might make the provincial government look at taxation differently, right? It might, uh, there might have to be some more, um, some concern about um, how how accessible, like whether in those border communities. Right, tax is higher, yeah. Uh, is this just about making a deal? Is this just about money? It's like everybody was, wants, just wants their piece of the pie, so in the end this is a better deal for everyone as long as everyone gets paid, or is this just going to upset the apple cart so much that it'll be left... Uh, you know, sort of on the drawing board. Uh, do you mean as far as uh, making new laws? Yes, and making things uh, flow better between provinces. I think that that's part of it. This, but this, because this is uh, this this individual's challenge. Um, it, it's about uh, individual citizens going across the border, but it could, uh, yeah, it could resonate into um, the 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 ability to transport things across the border. There has been some federal movement on that as well, right? You remember a few years ago there was. Um, a guy from, I think he was from the Okanagan, who, he was a, it was a private member's bill that managed to loosen up um, the wine selling, interprovincial wine selling law. So that would still have to be a federal. Um, federal and, and we still hear that, for, like a ton from the wineries, especially, yeah. you know, obviously down your way, that mm-hmm. these guys can't market their product in other parts of Canada. Yeah, it has opened up, but I, I off the top of my head, I can't remember um the regulations, but again, the LC, if you talk to the LCBO about this, they say, "Hey, look, you can you can get anything you want across this from across the country. Just come to us, and, and we'll order it for you." But they what they don't would say they charge is, you more? Um, I don't know if they charge you more, but they do require a certain volume before you can't just get one bottle. Probably twelve cases. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that seems to be the magic number. <laughs> it is. It oh man! Yeah. So. Uh, where where does this and does this affect the or would this affect the discussion on the legalization of marijuana moving forward? Um, I, I yeah I don't know that's a good question. Um, I mean it it would yeah because the federal government has moved uh, I, mean, I say punted this but has has made the the fine details responsibility of the provinces. I think this is one of the challenges that provincial premiers. Have have noted uh, with the short timeline is um, they really need to work together, especially in places like between Ontario and Quebec, to um, 
to make some sort of uh, similar regulations, I would say, around selling, selling um, because it's, it's much easier to, to transport that stuff, right? It's lighter. It's, you know, it's not like you don't need a truck to bring right. 12 cases if you want 12 mm-hmm. ounces. You can have a lot of weed, right? But, I, yeah, I don't know if – liquor had its own um, – liquor and liquor licensing had its sort of own uh, 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 little um, – what do you call it? Like, not clause, but this, it's, it's, right. its own component to the Constitution. It was a, a unique – Its own custom. condition, yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know if cannabis would follow the same um, – uh, regu- uh, would, would would follow the same sort of constitutional strictures, although this whole idea of peace, order, and good government could could come into it as well. Right? Well, this whole thing, and I mean, we've seen this modernize, especially in Ontario, a lot over the last year or so. Will this not force them to modernize everything? Just, I mean, you know, don't we need some sort of uh, consistent system here? Uh, you mean across the country? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, th- it does fall back to the idea that individual provinces have the right to sort of manage their own affairs on, on, on certain things. But right? then it wouldn't it be up to the individual province whether they want to chase this guy across the province to get beer off or to get his beer off him? I mean, in, in yeah. the sense, it's up to them to, to, to regulate, uh, not only to come up with the rules, but also to enforce them as well. Yes, absolutely. And so um, some provinces probably don't even worry about it. I don't know if between Manitoba and Ontario they're super concerned. And we've talked before about between Quebec and Ontario. I, you know, I don't think there's people sitting on the Alexander Bridge between Gatineau and Ottawa going, okay, how much you got there? How much did you pick up at the Costco, right? Yeah, really. Um, yeah. Um, so why are the taxes so low in Quebec on alcohol when they're so high there on everything else? Well, geez, you're asking me good questions today. I don't know the answer to that question. That's a really good one. Uh, it just yeah. seems odd because normally in Quebec you pay more for everything. Yeah, the, the sales it, it, tax is higher. Yeah, everything's higher. So yeah. it just seems odd that you know. I mean, you're seeing these you know cases of beer going for fifteen ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine. It's like being in the Piggly Wiggly in yeah. Buffalo. <laughs> they still have one of those. Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, I would my speculation and sort of informed speculation, I guess, is that Quebec has always and Quebecers have always had a different kind of relationship and perception of alcohol and danger. And a lot of our laws and a lot of our taxes are rooted in this idea of um, taxing something to discourage use, right? We saw that we see this with with tobacco is a great example. Um, And Quebec, I mean, it was reluctantly, it reluctantly, it had to be dragged into prohibition and it raced out of it as soon as it could. From 1918 to 1919, it ended prohibition quickly because there was just not the kind of um, appetite for I guess that's a good word, right? Appetite for that kind of restriction on liquor in Quebec. Um, the idea of state prohibition wasn't didn't didn't have that kind of the strength that it did in other provinces. And other a lot of provinces we have these excise tax, we have the sin taxes, right? And so I am guessing that that's where that comes from. How closely are you watching what's going on in Quebec? Are you that concerned about it? Will it change everything as is, as if some or as some are saying? Um, you mean what's happening to the Quebec New Brunswick yeah. uh, situation? I'm keeping a, a I'm, I have an interested eye on it because of the stuff I'm doing in earlier uh, liquor licensing. Because reading case law is is boring as heck, but it's really fascinating at the same time. Like so so I, yeah, I, I'm sort of keeping a, a, an, an eye on it. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself: The Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.